Good morning, everybody. How is everyone this morning? So far, so good. Is everyone awake? No? Oh, you're going to be that by the time we get done with our message today. I would love it if we could uh, take a little moment and go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be going into some some of the more difficult passages in your scriptures, Lord, some of the ones that give us trouble understanding. And we just, for the next two or three weeks, Father, we just ask that you would give us a spirit of understanding. We would ask that you would help us to ask the right questions about your word to us. We ask that you would help us to dive in more, research more, pray more, get into your word more and more, because we know that all of your scriptures are meant for us, for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. And we just ask that you would guide us all along the way, Lord. Father, I ask that you would be with me today, that you would make my words clear and concise, that you would help me to faithfully present your word to those in our community. And I ask that you would be all with all of us and all of those who are not able to make it today, that you would help lift them up and encourage them. And we pray all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And the church said, amen. All right. Um, if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app or whatever you like to read God's word in, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 today. And actually, I want to start at the very tail end of Exodus chapter 6 in verse 28. It's a lot of Bible. I would love, I think we should just jump right into it. I don't need any introduction here. Let's just jump right in. I want to start with Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. As soon as I can get there. We read here in God's word, it says, Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions and my people, the Israelites. And the Lord will, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So, Moses has been commissioned by God to go free the Israelites. He's been given the task of going to Pharaoh. And this, that's what God says to Moses when he tells him he's going to release the people. God is making some pretty big claims here in this passage of Scripture. He's making the claim that Moses will appear so powerful to Pharaoh that Pharaoh is going to think he's a He's claiming that he's going to bring all of Israel out of slavery from the world's largest superpower at the time. These are some big claims. And notice how God is using 
military language here. He says, I will bring out my division. Some translations might say regiments. Remember how in chapter 1 we talked about Pharaoh was not concerned about the Israelites per se. He was concerned about his enemies. He was concerned about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all of these big armies coming and his slaves going and joining forces with them. That's what Pharaoh was worried about. Now I want you to imagine for a minute that you're Moses. Maybe you grew up hearing all of the stories of God. Maybe you heard about how your great-great-great-grandfather you know, used to, to, to talk with God, how God used to interact with, with Isaac and Abraham and Jacob. But if you're Moses, if you're the Israelites right now, for the past 430 years, God has been silent. Remember that. And then all of a sudden, after 430 years of silence, God steps in and he says, I promise to take all of you, you backwoods, shepherds, slaves, and I'm going to turn you into soldiers and I'm going to release you from the world's largest superpower. So don't miss how big of a promise that is. And I want to look here at verse 19. I want to jump down to verse 19 and look at how God is fulfilling this promise he makes. So let's jump on over to chapter 7, verse 19. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and the canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn into blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. You guys remember what what Jesus' first miracle was in the book of John? Who knows what Jesus' first miracle was? Turning the water into wine out of stone vessels. And here we see God's first plague is turning water into blood. We're getting one of those moments where we're being pointed forward to the coming Messiah. We're seeing these shadows of the things yet to come. And then we read here in verse 20, It says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish of the Nile died, and the rivers smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. Okay, so I want to talk about these magicians. I want to talk about Pharaoh's magicians here for a minute. I don't know if it was sorcery or if it was just some sort of trick. It doesn't really matter how they were able to accomplish this feat. Because at the end of the day... They made things worse, not better. Like if we went, think about this for a second. If we went out to the North Platte River and we found that the river had been turned into blood and we called the governor of Nebraska and we panicked and said, there's blood in the river. And the governor was like, that's okay. I can turn water into blood. I'll turn all the water tower water into blood too. That's not helpful. 
No! And so it doesn't really matter how Sparrow's magicians were able to copy these first couple of plagues because they were just making things worse anyway. They do the same thing with the frogs. Let's go, let's go to chapter 8, verse 5. Verse 5 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came down and covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up in the land of Egypt. If there's frogs everywhere, the last thing you need is more frogs. So don't, don't mistake the, the magicians here. Don't mistake that and think that they are somehow a threat to God's authority. They're kind of helping God along here with these plagues. All they're doing is making things worse. It says, Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron, and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Hey, Richard, will you do me a favor and turn, our, turn my little... I'm too loud. I keep bumping into stuff. Will you turn me down a little bit? Sorry. Just turn my volume down just a little bit on my little slider thing. Sorry. I don't know. It's the one with the pluggy any thingy. The one that's got the little, that one right there. That's probably good. All right. Sorry. I kept hearing myself getting bumped on my microphone. It was distracting me. Okay. Where was I? Letting the people go. Yeah. So in verse 10, I want to read here. Um, Excuse me, where are we here? Pharaoh summoned Moses, said, Pray to the Lord, take the frogs away. Moses said to Pharaoh, verse 9, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. And I want to jump over to verse 16 here and hear about the next plague. See, because what we're getting here is this pattern where God brings a plague, Pharaoh says, okay, I give, you, your people can go, please take away this plague. Moses takes praise to God, God takes away the plague, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. And we're getting this over and over and over again. I want to look at the gnat. I want to look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on the people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Okay, so up until this point, even if it has been less than helpful, Pharaoh's magicians have been able to copy these plagues. But this is different. This is not God transforming one thing into another, 
or bringing creatures from one place to another. This is God creating life out of the dust. Kind of reminds us of Genesis a little bit, doesn't it? And for God, this plague of gnats is a simple task. This is another day at the office for God. Because we've already read that God is able to create all of existence with just word, with just his breath. And so do you think he has any trouble making a few bugs out of the dust? Yet the magicians realize at this point, at this stage early in the game, they're already way out of their league. They're already outmatched by something that is simple for God. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians says that, oh, I want to find it because I didn't mark it down, but I think this is important. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the wisdom, or excuse me, the weakness of God is foolishness, or excuse me, the weakness of God is strength to mankind, right? So this is, this is basically saying God doing something that's just another day at the office for him is something that we human beings could never even fathom. Take a look at chapter 8, verse 25. Exodus 8, 25. It says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go and offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Okay, so at this point, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But plague after plague after plague, Pharaoh promises you can go. Moses prays, takes away the plague. Pharaoh changes his mind. We're getting this sense of false remorse from Pharaoh. He's just saying whatever he needs to say to get these plagues to go away. But I want you to notice the concession that Pharaoh makes here. He says, you can have your sacrifices, you can have your religion, you can do all your stuff, but I want you to stay here in Egypt. You can practice your faith, but I want you to be here in Egypt under my control. Last week we talked about the tension that we experience between being a disciple and living a comfortable life. Y'all remember that? And what Pharaoh is trying to offer Moses at this point is the best of both worlds. He's trying to say, you can stay here in Egypt under my authority, under my control. I will provide for you. And then you can still go and do all of your sacrifices, but I will still be the one that's in charge. And that's what Pharaoh is trying to do here. And it reminds us of the time Jesus is wandering in the desert. Y'all remember when, when Jesus is wandering in the desert and Satan is tempting him? Satan gives Jesus the choice. He says, if you just bow down and worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can have all of the glory, 
all of the benefits without the suffering that comes along with it. And Satan gives us that same choice. He says to us, you know, you can still go to church. You can still practice your faith. But if you really wanted to, you could still do all the things that you used to do. You could still have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. That's the choice that Pharaoh's trying to give Moses. That's the choice that Satan tried to give Jesus. And that's the choice that he gives us. We've been, we've been spending a lot of time in Matthew chapter 10 the last few weeks. And we've been comparing Matthew 10 with what we're reading here in Exodus. I want to go there one more time. I want to read Matthew 10, starting in verse 37. And I want to look at what Jesus says to his disciples after he warns them of all the things that they're going to endure. So I'd love if you'd... And jump into verse 37. This is what Jesus says. He says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In Mark and Luke it says, is not worthy of being my disciple. It says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What am I getting at here? I'm getting at the fact that God doesn't ask for once a week Christmas. God doesn't ask for the type of Christians who have one foot in Egypt and one foot in the wilderness. the type of Christians who go and practice their faith, but still at heart remain under Pharaoh's authority and power. And that's, that's something that Pharaoh didn't understand. That's something that our culture today doesn't seem to understand. Our world tries to tell us that we can have our faith, but our religion should be like a hobby. It's like something that maybe we get a Sunday off every now and then. Maybe we get to wear a cross necklace or put a little fish bumper sticker on our car. But other than that, the world wants us to look and act just like everyone else. That's not the kind of that God wants. God wants us to freely choose to devote our entire life and existence to Him. And that ability to choose to worship God is important. I want to, as we continue working through Exodus, I want you to take note of the great lengths that God goes to to get Pharaoh to make the right choice. In chapter 9, let's go back over to Exodus 9. In chapter 9, after these minor plagues got up, we're not just talking about annoyances here. We're not just talking about 
flies and frogs and all that kind of stuff. Now God starts messing with the livestock and the agriculture of this land. We're getting to the point where in an agrarian society, in a, in a culture that's built around agriculture, God is messing with people's livelihoods. We're talking about serious economic consequences. Because we read 9, or did I click something? Oh man, my thing keeps jumping around here. I apologize, guys. Interesting. Sorry. There we go. Matthew 9, Exodus 9. So, let's just jump in and read Exodus 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on all your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land, and the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died but not one single animal belonging to the Israelites died. Okay, so just a real quick note here. In verse 6, we've been talking about these Bible tools that we use. And, and in verse 6 where it says, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, sometimes you have to use a little bit of common sense when you're reading. Because later on in chapter 9, we're going to read about more Egyptian livestock that suffered. The hail. Okay, so... Just know that sometimes the word all in the Hebrew can mean all kinds of animals died. And we know that just because we can use our head, we can use our common sense, we know that if there's livestock later on, then obviously some of them were left. Otherwise, there would be none left to be in the hail and all of the other plagues. So just kind of use a little bit of common sense when you're reading Scripture. But nonetheless, it was enough livestock that God killed that, it was a big deal. It was a big problem for these people. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see that, that God tells Moses to pick up some soot, and he creates festering boils on all of these people to the point where Pharaoh's magicians couldn't even stand before Moses. And then we read in verse 12. Let's jump down to verse 12. It says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses, just as the Lord had said to Moses. And I know we've been zooming through this very quickly because there's a lot of Bible that I want to get through, but I hope you've noticed that up until this point, this is the first time where we actually read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we're on plague number five. Up until this point, Pharaoh has been hardening his own heart. Because God values the fact that Pharaoh needs to have the opportunity to choose to release the Israelites. God always gives us the free choice to reject him. 
Think about this. If you or I were tasked with releasing the Israelites, wouldn't it have been just so much simpler to go to Pharaoh in the dream somehow or just take away his free will and just change his mind and force him to let the Israelites go? Wouldn't that have just been simpler? Just take away one person's free will and this whole thing wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have even had to change the mind of all the people in Egypt, just the one guy in charge. And yet, time and time again, God grants him the free choice to reject him. For whatever reason, God has decided that our ability to choose whether or not we follow him is one of the most important aspects of our faith. Because ultimately, God wants our love, and true love is not love if it's not freely chosen. And so we read here, for the first time, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Don't take that to mean that throughout the whole thing, Pharaoh had no choice in the matter. In fact, just the opposite. God is allowing Pharaoh's heart to do what it naturally otherwise would have done. I want to look over at Romans chapter 1. Paul talks about this. In Romans 1, Paul is talking about the Gentiles outside of the church, and he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then in, and in Romans, he goes on to talk about sexual immorality and a whole host of other sins that God gave their hearts over to, but the point is still the same. The concept applies. God didn't have to do anything to make Pharaoh not obey. Pharaoh was naturally doing that. So after all this, God sends more and more plagues. We get to a hailstorm that he sends. This is in verse Chapter 9, verse 20. We read about God's hailstorm, and it says, Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. That's how big of a hailstorm it was. Anybody who's been around livestock and cattle, how big of a hailstorm does it have to be for you to go out and bring your cows inside? That's big, because you don't go out and just bring the cows in for a little bitty hailstorm, right? You go out if it's a big thing. And so the fact that it was big enough that they went out and brought all of their servants and all of their livestock in means this is a big hailstorm. And remember, these are the livestock that are left over after the first plague. Because God continually gave chances and chances and chances for Pharaoh to turn back. 
And even in this hailstorm, God doesn't wipe everything out at first. In verse 31, we have this little note. It says, the flax and the barley were destroyed, since the barley are headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. Why do, why do, we, why do our farmers plant multi-crop in their fields? Why do they do that? For the ground, that's part of it. But, but, but another big part of it is for this exact reason. If you have a disease that comes through and wipes out all of one crop, you don't want to be left with nothing else. We, we do this because it's a form of insurance. We put up different crops at different times for this exact reason, so that if some sort of disaster happens, you're not completely devastated. And so Pharaoh's kingdom at this point has lost lost all of their livestock, half of their crops, and yet we read in verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So, I want to be careful when we're reading this, because we might get this idea that this is some sort of threat to the Israelites saying, oh, you better stay in line or else this is going to happen to you. I think, there's, I think there's more to it than that, though. Think about it. We have a justice system because we enjoy punishing criminals. In fact, if we, if we lived in a fairy tale world where we could just tell murderers to stop murdering and that's all it took, we would do that. And if we lived in a world where all God had to do was to tell Pharaoh to release his people and he listened, God would have done that. But we don't live in that world. God tried that. God tried telling Pharaoh, just let my people go. Just let my people go. And that didn't work. One of the verses we skipped over because we've been breezing through this. I encourage you, by the way, read this at home so we have more time to actually go through and read all of it. But in chapter 9, verse 15, God says this. This is really a key passage. God says, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. You see what we're getting at here? That would have been the effective way to do things. That would have been the painless way to do things. But God is not interested in winning the battle of evil at the expense of even one person who might change his or her mind. See, God's ultimate goal is to remove pain and suffering and sin from the earth once and for all, but he will not do that before every single one of his children has the opportunity to say yes. Even Pharaoh 
This morning I talked about being ready for Jesus' second coming. If you want to know why he hasn't come back yet, is because there's at least one of his children that he's waiting on. Think about that. God is holding off his plans for, at, at the very least, one more of his children to come along. All of his plans of the entire universe, and he's holding off waiting. And I don't know who that is. You don't know who that is. That's why it's our job to go out and gather in those sheep. Because God's waiting. He's holding off his plans. He hasn't destroyed Egypt yet because somebody might change their mind. He's not willing to leave anyone, anyone behind. And so I think God's reminder here is not a threat, it's a revelation of his nature. It's an indication of both his desire to remove evil from the world and also a demonstration of his love and patience and mercy for his children. I'm going to finish off and I want to read the very last plague here. I want to start in chapter 10, jump down to verse 21. It says, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand through the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. I don't know how dark it has to be to feel it. That's impressive. So Moses stretched his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else, or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you, only leave your flocks behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. That's a lot to take in. I hope you understand from all of these plagues, from all of these works that God did. Number one, I hope you understand the depth of God's authority over heaven and earth. I feel like that's pretty evident from all of the things. I hope you understand the importance of choosing God's ways over our own ways. I think that's also pretty evident from the account. I hope you understand the importance of worshiping God wholeheartedly, not with one foot still in Egypt. But one other thing I think we kind of glossed over, and then you kind of don't understand unless you look into it, is that each and every one of these plagues was a direct challenge to one of Egypt's idols. Remember those 2,000 gods that they worshipped? So God's authority over the frogs in the Nile was a direct challenge to the Egyptian idol. I had it written down here. 
Heket. I don't know. She looked like a frog or something. There was one of the gods, Osiris, who was the god of the Nile when God turns the Nile into blood. Each and every one of them lines up with one of the idols of Egypt. And God is saying, every single one of them, I have authority over because they are statues. They are not real. I have authority over the Nile because I made the Nile. I have authority over the flies because I made the flies. I have authority over you because I made you. And this very last one, the, the, the sun being blotted out, this was a direct challenge to the Egyptian god Ra, who was the sun god. Other than Pharaoh himself, Ra was their main god that they worshipped, and God blotted him out for three days. Like that. And obviously we don't have a whole host of people out there worshipping frogs. But we still put up idols before God, don't we? Our jobs, our money, our reputation, all of these things that we put in front of God, we still tend to put them as idols. And what God is saying here is he has authority over those things. Your life, your reputation, your job, your money, all of it. If we put it in front of God, if we put it before God as an idol... God can wipe it out with a second. I just ask that if, if this is a moment, if you've got one foot in Egypt, if you've got an idol, if you've got something that you're hanging onto that you're putting in place of God, take this moment and let it go and surrender the authority of all of those things in your life to God and stop resisting Him and commit to Him in every way. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all the gifts you give us. We just ask that you would help us to put you first, Lord. We ask that you would help us to remember that you are the Lord of our life. We ask that you would guide us as we go throughout our week. We ask that you would help us to dive into your scriptures. We ask that you would help us to ask the questions we need to ask. We ask that you would give us the strength we need to go out and proclaim your good news to all of the world. And we pray all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. All right, everybody, I ask if you would please stand with me.